and welcome to 13, the bi-weekly podcast where one Colgate University community member answers 13 questions about their work. My name is Daniel DeVries, and today we'll be chatting with Associate Professor of Sociology and Environmental Studies, Chris Henke. Professor Henke is a member of Colgate's Sociology and Anthropology Department, as well as the Department of Environmental Studies. He specializes in the sociology of science and technology, the sociology of work, and the social history of agriculture and the environment. In 2008, Professor Henke's first book, Cultivating Science, Harvesting Power, Science and Industrial Agriculture in California, was published by MIT Press. And his newest work, co-authored with Benjamin Sims, is titled Repairing Infrastructures, The Maintenance and Materiality of Power. And that was published this month by MIT Press as well. Henke has garnered numerous research awards, including a 2009 National Science Foundation Scholars Award. And in 2000, he was awarded the Sally Hacker Prize for Best Graduate Student Paper by the American Sociological Association. Professor Henke earned his bachelor's degree from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and his master's and PhD from the University of California, San Diego. Professor Henke, welcome to 13. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. All right. We're excited to have you on the program. So sociology is a pretty broad area of expertise. I think the uh, dictionary definition is something like the study of the development, structure, and functioning of human society. Can you talk a little bit about your brand of sociology and how it may differ from someone's you know, preconception of what a sociologist does? Sure, that's a great question. I think a lot of times people aren't sure what sociology is or they might have some preconceptions about what it is or what it's not, like you said before. I think one of the things I try to emphasize to my students that I really appreciate about sociology is that everything is social in some way uh, because everything that we encounter and think about and talk about experience is shaped through social interactions and social perceptions. So basically everything is under the umbrella of sociology in some ways. Um, even like a, one, one, one thing I'm really interested in in terms of my um, background in science and technology studies is the way that certain phenomenon in the world are things that are out there and that obviously science is a way for us to understand it um, in terms of say some planet that's in the solar system, um, whether something is a planet or not. But at the same time, there's people that do that, right? People are the ones who are doing science, are um, constructing technologies. So I'm really interested in the ways that those are social processes that are subject to um, politics, that are subject to um, human interaction, that are subject to um, inequalities and structures in our society. And so the bread and butter categories of sociology are things like understanding inequality on the basis of race or class or gender. Those are things that you would always learn about in introduction to sociology. And you'd also learn about different theories of social structures, uh, ways that people interact with each other. But all those things tend to shape any institution or any example that you can think of in our country and our society or really the world or the universe. So sociology has a, a lot of subject areas and I think that's one reason sometimes it's hard to define, but the bottom line definition is that it's how people do stuff in groups together in all different ways. Hmm. I wanna talk a little bit about your first book, um, Cultivating Science, Harvesting Power. And uh, in that work, you explore how agricultural scientists and growers in California cooperated uh, in shaping the state's multi-billion dollar farm industry. So tell us a little bit about the evolution of uh, California's agriculture throughout the years and, and through your research. Yeah, that book uh, was one that was based on my PhD dissertation that I did uh, when I was actually going to grad school in California. As you said in the intro, I got my PhD from UC San Diego and I became really interested in California generally while I was there. I'm a Midwesterner. I grew up in Wisconsin. So almost everything about California seemed very exotic. And it was really the first time in my life I had lived outside of the Midwest when I 
went to uh, California and people always used to ask, are you from Canada? Because they would hear my uh, Wisconsin accent. It softened a little bit over the years. Um, but California is really interesting in terms of its environment, in terms of its culture and history, and all those things are reflected in the food systems there. And if you were to go to Price Chopper today and grab a head of lettuce, say you have a, a wrapped head of iceberg lettuce that you pick up from one of the um, produce aisles there, and you turn it over and look at the label, it's probably going to say Salinas, California on it. Um, most of the fresh produce, especially things like lettuce, broccoli, carrots, um, uh, um, cauliflower, stuff like that, all that is produced in the Western states, a lot of it anyway. Some is also produced in Florida, um, some is imported, but a lot of it comes from a series of relatively small valleys in California and Arizona. And I was really curious about how did that happen? How is it that we got a food system where even in little old Hamilton, New York, we're getting our lettuce, um, if, you, if you choose to shop at, at Price Chopper um, or another grocery store that's coming from California. And so one of the things I really wanted to know was what's the story behind that? But in particular, as I was saying before, the interest that I have in science and technology studies how was science and technology pivotal um, and involved? So I really wanted to understand that history. And as I said before, thinking about my interest in science and technology studies, I really was curious about the role of scientists. And so I decided to study this particular institution, Cooperative Extension. And we actually have a Cooperative Extension office for Cornell right here in Madison County. And you can go to any county in the US and most of them actually have their own Cooperative Extension staff who are uh, folks who have area expertise and their job is to help farmers um, mainly uh, on the agricultural side. There's also home economics and other um, folks who are focused a little bit more on nutrition, family, stuff like that. Um, their, their job is to provide expertise to farmers to help them do their jobs better, to be more productive and so forth. So I was really interested in how this nationwide system of expertise got set up and how it was um, important in the California context in helping farmers to grow this industry? And what were some of the um, successes that they had in doing that? And what are the challenges that they faced too? And overall, how is it that the state scientists, the industry worked together to develop this industry? And what were the trade-offs with that um, in terms of, obviously it's good if we have um, abundant food, but there's also sometimes trade-offs in terms of environmental impacts, uh, maybe inequitable distribution of those benefits, things like that are, are some of the issues that I cover in the book. It, it makes me wonder, so when did, when did the, um, I guess, the mass um, uh, distribution of um, fresh vegetables from California really begin? And, um, you know, is there sufficient water to keep doing that in California? I know that's always a, a big concern. Yeah, well, it really started around 1920 or so in the case of, of lettuce. Most, of, most produce before this was a little bit more seasonal and it was a little bit more regional. So that's why New Jersey, uh, their license plate says the garden state, they used to be one of the big producers and still you know, an important agricultural state. New York obviously is an important agricultural state too, especially in things like dairy, apples, other commodities where it's still Onions. a major producer. What's that? Onions. Onions, yeah. <laughs> I grew up in the Black Dirt area of New York. So. Good, yeah. The, no, there, there still are these, these specialties that, um, that the states in the Northeast produce. So it's not as though we're not agricultural states here. But there uh, increasingly were these kind of entrepreneurs and um, people who were kind of willing to take a gamble on the ability to ship fresh produce across the country, have it survive that trip, and cash in on markets in the most populated areas of the country at that time were really clustered in the Northeast, New York, Philly, uh, places like that. So they started shipping these railroad cars full of lettuce that were also packed with ice. And they're really hoping it could get across fast enough before it all turned into mush. <laughs> and uh, that was kind of the start of this system of production, transportation, distribution um, across the country 
into all different corners so that now there's this system it's shipped by trucks instead of railroad car now so if you see all these refrigerated um, boxcar trucks uh, semi trucks they're the ones that are bringing this produce all around the country do you see that changing like do you see uh, a shift in where the country gets the um, majority of its produce it's a good question i think since the onset of the pandemic there's a lot of interest in people eating a little bit more locally and regionally. I know that the uh, CSA farm, Community Supported Agriculture Farm that I um, am a member of, Common Thread Community Farm, um, is my beloved farm here um, in Madison, just down the road from Hamilton. And uh, every year, you know, my family pays for a share and we can go to the farm every week during the production season and pick up a box of fresh vegetables. And I know that this has actually been a blockbuster year for them. They've had way more demand than ever before to have locally sourced food. And that's a trend that we see to some degree um, in other places around the country that people, mm, I think I'm a little bit more concerned about where their food is coming from and to what extent it's gonna be available for them if some of these transportation networks or other logistics and supply lines get disrupted because of the pandemic, because of other factors. People want to know, have a little bit more, almost a hands-on sense of where their food is coming from. And so that might start to shift a little bit. People shopping patterns, their eating patterns to some degree, and to the extent that they can participate in it. There's, you know, uh, a range of different resources, experiences, education, identities that all influence food choices. So it's not to say that it's going to be the same for everybody that way. Uh, shift gears a little bit to uh, your newest work uh, and, you know, looking at repairing infrastructure and um, infrastructure studies in general. So I'm curious, how did you end up uh, getting into um, look, you know, examining infrastructure? And do you primarily look at infrastructure in the U.S. or globally? Yeah, it's a good question. A, a lot of my research has been a little bit more U.S. based, but in the book, we actually do have a number of case studies that look more globally. So we um, have, especially um, work that's published by other authors that we cite and discuss in the book, we try to give a, a real wide range of case studies about infrastructure studies. Some of those are ones that Ben and I, my co-author, have written about and researched, and some of them are ones that other folks have done. So, for example, there's a really good um, book by a, um, a STS scholar, science and technology scholar named Sebastian Urita, who published a book on the subway system that they were trying to implement in Santiago, Chile, and some of the politics, some of the issues and uh, challenges and even protests around that. So we tried to really include some examples that really take you around the world. And one of the key organizing frames that we have in the book is scale. So we start out at kind of a local level and we go all the way up to the global level, uh, trying to understand the inter connectivity of infrastructures and all the related impacts because of that in the context of the book. Hmm. But um, the way I first got interested in this is kind of a, I don't know, kind of a funny, kind of a goofy story maybe in some ways. My first, one of my first um, terms in grad school, I took a course on ethnographic research methods. Ethnog ethnographic methods are when you kind of go into a community and you um, work, live with them in some cases on a day-by-day -day basis and really try to understand personally um, as well as kind of in a more professional way, how does that community work? What are the um, assumptions, the norms, the rules for behavior, the culture of that place? So ethnography just means kind of like the study of culture, mm -hmm. and but in a really in-depth way. So the first day of class, the professor who ended up being uh, my beloved uh, grad school mentor, Chandra Mukherjee, said, all right, everyone needs to figure out where they're going to do their ethnography this quarter. We are in the quarter system, so it's only 10 weeks as opposed to 15 weeks we have at Colgate. And I was like, uh, okay, I guess I better think of something quick because she went around the table and had everyone just kind of say what they wanted to do. <laughs> I don't know where I was in line, but I wasn't the first person. I had a little time to think about it while we're going around the table. And... I was like, you know, I was really interested in how is uh, how do people in uh, uh, an everyday job 
use forms of knowledge that we might kind of think of as uh, a little bit more scientific or technological. Um, and maybe they're not credentialed in terms of having like a higher degree or some um, kind of training in engineering, but yet they're doing almost like a kind of reasoning that we would think of as like scientific reasoning. And the example, I think that, you know, if you, th you listen to like car talk or things like that, where they're really trying to diagnose a car problem, I was kind of always interested in how that was kind of um, a form of non-credentialed scientific reasoning. So I thought, okay, one good place to look at would be repair workers. I would be interested in doing an ethnography of repair workers. So I actually spent my term, those 10 weeks, working with the equivalent of B&G staff that we have at Colgate at University of California, San Diego. That's buildings and grounds. Buildings and grounds, yep. yep. And so these were facilities workers who, just like at Colgate, they had bands or pickup trucks they would drive around. And if somebody had a problem in their office or in their lab or another setting, they would be on call to come and try to address those problems. And um, I got really interested in that and it was a really fun study and it really, um, it really inspired me to want to be an ethnographer and to really use that method in my own research. Hmm. And uh, it was actually, that class was the basis of the first article that I ever published. And that was a article that kind of summarized this ethnography of repair work that, um, that I did. And it turns out that that's like, still like my most cited, you know, it's not nothing compared to like, you know, some of the scholars who have thousands of citations, but it's one like, you know, that I did like in one of my first semesters uh, terms in grad school and it led to this publication and that over the years has kind of led me to want to explore those issues in other contexts. Mm -hmm. So the book on um, the produce industry in California, that was kind of a follow-up study where it's interested, okay, these people who are working in counties around the country, including in California, including here in New York, how are they a system for repairing all different types of problems related to food production? And sometimes that's like a real on the ground kind of problem, literally, where there's a bug that's eating a crop and they have to give advice about maybe an appropriate treatment or some different practice that they could use to help um, control that pest. But in the book, I also talked about these kind of more macro types of repair where they were um, say helping deal with labor shortages uh, during World War II and became kind of almost like a labor contracting service. Mm -hmm. And so that book is kind of about repair, not in a sense where you're fixing problem in an office, but it is a form of repair about this large infrastructural system that brings lettuce to our little town here in Hamilton. And how does that keep going? How does that keep working? How do they deal with, disruptions and problems along the way. Hmm. Timely. <laughs> um, part of the book, uh, you know, in the, in the abstract, it, it states that the book investigates not only the role of repair in maintaining infrastructures, but also the social and political orders that are created and sustained through them. So I'm curious about these unseen impacts of infrastructure repair um, that the public may not realize. So what are these social and political orders that are created? Yeah, I mean, again, um, it's it happens at all different kinds of scales. To take one example that's at a much more local scale that I found in this initial study that I did of the facilities workers, and really it's the intro to the second chapter in the book. It's what I describe as the cold office problem. Cold office, you go into your office one day, um, Maybe people aren't going into their offices much right now. Remember uh, when people are working remote, right? But you know, it's a really it's a it's a common issue. I, I know in in my building and, and around campus, sometimes people say oh, it's so cold in here today, and they're kind of rubbing their arms, and there must be something wrong with the the system here, right? And the same thing happened in the study I did in grad school that one of the uh, mechanics I was following around had to go to an office where a woman was complaining about her office being too cold. And he went in there and he checked some settings in the various kind of computer systems that were controlling that. And he did some measurements of airflow and temperature in the office. And ultimately he said, you know what, lady, there's no problem here. And that was kind of it, right? So she was kind of left to kind of feel cold. And the official diagnosis was there's no problem here. 
in the book, one of the things that I go into is how a lot of the algorithms and, and uh, formulas and calculations that have been set to regulate temperature in office buildings was actually developed by mostly male engineers in the 1960s and 70s. And so there's been a lot of subsequent research that suggests that those calculations, those formulas are not necessarily appropriate for all different body types and all different um, um, people across different identity groups and especially across gender, that there is a way in which these uh, formulas and the structures that we use for heating and cooling buildings have been designed around uh, a male identity mm. in a lot of ways. And so the cold office problem is a problem that's a personal problem, but it's also a structural problem because there's a way that it's really kind of built into the system to some extent. It's not to say that a guy could not necessarily feel cold in an office, uh, um, but that overall there's a pattern uh, based on how these systems were designed. And that's, that's how kind of you can kind of connect that very, very local problem of being cold in your office and not sure what's uh, going on there. And these kind of larger issues that are historical, that are structural, and that um, are really institutional in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of other examples we talk about in the book too that kind of scale that up um, kind of at national levels and even global levels too. Uh, so during your tenure at Colgate, you've led a few different study groups. And one of those in particular was a faculty kind of exploratory group um, in 2016, where you went to St. Louis, Chicago, and Detroit uh, in looking at food systems and gentrification. Tell me a little bit about that trip. Yeah, that was a really fun, uh, interesting, challenging, but also just really rewarding trip that was funded by this amazing resource we have at Colgate called the Colgren Fund. It's a fund where faculty can propose trips that are just really for faculty to explore a particular topic, region, theme. And there's a lot of different trips that have gone all different kinds of places over the years. And I got together with a group of fellow faculty who are really all interested in food. And in particular, to what extent in the US, urban spaces are sites where people are ex experimenting with new models of food production and consumption, things like urban gardens, things like food incubators, turning old factory spaces into places where you could have a food-based business or a farmer's market or some other kind of community-based food model. There's a lot of experimentation happening in urban spaces around the country. And we kind of wanted to learn more about that. So we put in a proposal, we were fortunate that it got funded that allowed us to take this two week road trip as a group. Um, there were like seven or eight of us who were part of this and from folks from all around the university. Um, it's a very interdisciplinary group. And yeah, we flew to St. Louis, we rented a minivan and we spent the next two weeks on the road um, and um, were in each place for several days before we left St. Louis, then went to Chicago, then finished in Detroit and flew home, left the minivan in Detroit and flew home from there. And it was just really super interesting to see all these different models. We went to a lot of different gardens and farms in each place. We went to some of these places where, like I said before, they're kind of trying to repurpose older um, factories that had been abandoned or um, not really used in a number of years. Uh, other spaces where some of this experimentation was happening, in some cases by people who were developers and wanted to um, take some of these resources and use them in a new way. Some cases by community groups who are really concerned about lack of access to fresh food um, and uh, concerns with food justice and food security and trying to kind of like, you know, take a take a, a plot of land and use it for the community, especially in um, areas where uh, there are communities of color or other folks who are kind of disenfranchised from our mainstream food systems. And so we were kind of looking at um, what are those models? What are the experiences? We really wanted to just kind of explore and learn um, literally on the ground from the folks who are doing that kind of work in these places. And that was the main idea behind the trip. Hmm. Now, I wonder if that ties into uh, 
the, my next question here, and that is you are teaching a course this semester that's simply titled Food. Uh, and uh, part of the description of that course, I, I'd like to read here because I think it's interesting. It says, food is more than just what we eat. Food is also a commodity with complex global markets and ecological impacts. It's highly regulated through our political processes and institutions, and it forms a key part of our culture and the social rhythms of everyday life. This course explores these many dimensions of food, focusing especially on key questions about where it comes from, how it is produced, and how it is embedded in our economic, political, and cultural institutions. So it's kind of a two-part question here, but what do you find that students um, latch onto as being most surprising about um, food production that they may have um, not realized prior to taking the course? And how did that trip that you took in 2016 influence the course? Yeah, so since I'm on the topic of the, the trip, I'll, I'll maybe answer the second one first and continue with that. Um, there's a lot of really important influences um, just to be able to come back to class and teach about the concepts of, say, food insecurity, the idea that there's some people because of their income or lack of income, because of where they live, because of um, different identities that that um, may privilege them or not privilege them in various ways, they don't have the same access to food and uh, both in terms of enough food, healthy food, culturally appropriate food, so forth. So that's kind of a definition, right? But when you can actually come back and say, here's a community in uh, Detroit that has a community farm and there's a group of people that are trying to really address this issue of food insecurity and food justice on the ground there. And uh, let me tell you about a person that I talked with there and show a picture of our group of faculty kind of engaging with that person. It's just so valuable to like have those real world examples mm. that I can bring back and share with the students. It really just, it makes it so much more tangible. Um, and obviously you can get those kinds of things from, from books and from articles and there's tons of food documentaries now too. So there's a lot of ways you can kind of bring those examples into the class, but the fact that kind of I was there, I could talk about my own experience and kind of personalize it that way. I think it really helps students to kind of see it um, through the, the, the through my experiences and that I can just share it in, in so much more of a personal way that way. Yeah. So the first part of your question was about what are students kind of surprised about in terms of food production? And I think, you know, one of the things I really try to emphasize, and I think it was in that um, course description is just how interconnected everything is with food. So we have this model that I have, and it's really, it's kind of a goofy model in some ways, but I call it the food diagram. And I make a lot of jokes about it. Like I have it trademarked and stuff like that, but I don't, but <laughs> it's essentially the idea of the food diagram is to show that food is at the center of kind of this Venn diagram. I don't draw it as a Venn diagram. It's just these boxes that have arrows between them, but it's at the center of this interconnected set of cultural, political, economic, and ecological processes. And to really kind of see where our, our food comes from and how it's produced, you have to understand the interconnection of those factors, that there's all kinds of politics around food in terms of what we subsidize, what we don't. Uh, we we're talking the other day about corn subsidies and the fact that there's, you know, a big chunk of the federal ag budget that goes to subsidies that produce corn and what are the impacts of that, good or bad. Hmm. Um, and then uh, there's all kinds of uh, obviously economic markets. It's a this global system of commodities. Um, I've mentioned before things like food insecurity obviously are very connected to people's pocketbooks. But then there's also uh, really important cultural dimensions in terms of what people eat. What do they consider even food? There's all kinds of differences culturally and historically about what counts as food, what people will eat, what they won't eat. So we talk a lot about how that you know connects to food traditions um, in their own families, um, in uh, their different uh, identity groups, if they're a member of a particular uh, racial or ethnic group um, or a religious community that has certain food practices, those are all gonna shape the more of the consumption side of things. Um, but obviously that has ramifications for production as well. And then the whole ecological dimension too, um, about the way that food comes from a place. It comes 
from ground. There's no such thing as virtual food unless we're talking about Farmville or some Facebook game or something like that, right? That's not, it's not something that's going to sustain you for very long though, right? So food is fundamentally a, a material thing that comes from the world and requires resources and is governed by all kinds of biological, chemical um, processes. And we don't get into the nuts and bolts of that because that's not my background, right? But in terms of the fact that it does come from a place, there's a lot of different um, ecological consequences that come from food production um, that might impact that particular location, but also impacts the world, um, mm -hmm. even you know, due to the impacts on climate change from food production. So that's not a specific thing that students are maybe surprised, although they are surprised about how much we uh, spend on uh, subsidizing uh, corn production. Uh, but I think they're, hopefully their eyes are kind of open to those interconnected factors and just like how deep they go and something that's so daily, seems so simple, so basic, um, especially for, you know, students, uh, many of our students um, haven't had to worry about where their food's coming. Some, some have definitely, there's, there's, there's definitely a sense of that and actually campus um, food insecurity among students is a hot topic in food studies right now. Um, but, you know, oftentimes we don't think too much about what we're eating, where it came from, what all the factors are. So in this class, we really get to dive into that and, and dive pretty deep. That's cool. In 2001, you wrote a review of Douglas Harper's book, Changing Works, Visions of a Lost Agriculture. And you wrote, abandoned farmhouses and decaying old barns serve as reminders of an agricultural economy that supported rural communities in New York for generations. Though farming is still a viable way of making a living here, factors such as low commodity prices and enormous debt loads make farming feasible only for farmers who produce special niche commodities on a small scale or for those producers who continually increase their scale of production for more conventional commodities such as corn or dairy. As a result, more and more farmers have chosen to sell their holdings and get out of agriculture leading to an ever greater concentration of farmland and agricultural production among fewer farmers. So I'm curious if that statement still holds true today and what changes you've seen to New York farming um, practices or the uh, farming economy that either gives you hope or concern for the future. Yeah, that's a good question. It's a big question and there's like a couple different parts or dimensions to it, I think. In that quotation you gave, and by the way, we use changing works in my food class. So we, oh. we were just reading we were just reading that book two weeks ago and, and talking a lot about the history of the dairy industry uh, in New York. It's just really a great book. And I love, I've been really inspired by a lot of the work that Douglas Harper has done and have used um, his various writings in, in, in books in different classes. That's a bit of an aside, but That's if you cool. get a chance to look at Changing Works and you're interested in um, some of the historical dimensions, um, community-based dimensions of New York agriculture, I can highly recommend that book. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I would say that you know, for uh, commodity production in terms of corn, in terms of dairy, um, the other things that really our county and, and kind of central New York is, is most known for, those trends still hold where um, over time there's increasing consolidation of production where folks are essentially pushed out of the market because of uh, price, uh, how tight the prices are. And that's just gotten worse since the pandemic. And you probably heard stories about some of the milk dumping that farmers were up uh, were pushed to and uh, just you know it's it's there's a lot of tragedies that are embedded in the pandemic but one of the tragedies is that uh, industry that already was squeezed in so many ways just is squeezed a little bit more um, because of that so uh, increasingly yeah you see you see more and more farmers dairy farmers in particular who can't stay in the market anymore and are pushed out because of low uh, commodity prices so that over time you can you can graph this um, and it's been happening for decades and it's still happening um, year by year now where there's fewer farms and the farms that are left are getting uh, bigger and bigger. And I think one thing you have to be careful about is not to mm, make it sound like, I mean, obviously that's a problem. I think it's a problem anyway. I, 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 I described it as a tragedy and I don't, 
I don't want to see farmers go out of business. And it's not just going out of business, the human toll of it um, in terms of depression, in terms of suicides, there's been a lot of news coverage about that. And obviously that's part of the tragedy too. At the same time, the farmers who are here in Madison County and in central New York are really proud and they should be proud of the work that they do. And there is still a thriving industry that's our number one industry in the county too. So I don't want to pathologize it too much and make it sound, ah, oh, this, you know, this industry is dying. It's, you know, just going out. Like there's a lot of um, farming that's still happening. And so it's not just all abandoned farmhouses and crumbling barns and stuff like that that are left behind. There, there is really an important industry that's here that we should recognize and, and we should support. But those trends are really real. There's no escaping those trends um, it, it, unless we really <laughs> start to um, reorient uh, how, how we do things and, and kind of maybe reconsider our policies, reconsider some of our, our food choices, things like that. Um, but overall, those trends are true, I think, for uh, especially those traditional commodity producers who really kind of have been the main um, backbone of our farm industry here in central New York over the last 100 years or so. Hmm. However, if you look at the numbers for other types of farms, and I think especially small vegetable producers like this um, CSA farm that I mentioned before, and other farms like that are actually on the increase in our region in recent years. So that there's actually growth of other types of farms at the same time that there's fewer of the um, some of the commodity, um, more traditional uh, commodity producers in the region. So you've got kind of these intersecting trend lines where there are more farmers who are growing uh, stuff in, in the niche markets that I just referred to very briefly. And again, I don't, I don't mean niche like, you know, small potatoes, pun intended. I mean, like uh, there's, there's a million different uh, food jokes I can tell, by the way. So I'll try not, I'll, I'll try to limit it. <laughs> yeah. It's more food jokes. <laughs> um, that you know, th those those are places where there's a, again a lot of experimentation happening. People who are inspired to say, you know what, I want to, I want to try this out. I, I and some of these are people who are moving from a, a job in a city. Um, I know somebody who was an engineer and decided that they wanted to uh, quit that life and and open up a farm, and other people like that who have kind of said, you know, I want to make a try of this. Some of that's farmers. Um, some of it's actually food producers. So we see, you know, that in Hamilton, we've got a couple of alumni who have um, opened up some of these places like Good Nature Brewing, um, Carrie Blackmore, Colgate grad, who said, I, I want to try this out. I want to see if I can make this work. Um, Brittany down at Flower and Salt, who actually was in my FSM, believe it or not, <laughs> back in the day when she was first here at Colgate. Um, you know, some some of this entrepreneurial spirit has really helped to develop new um, farming and food businesses in the region that have grown in recent years. So that that is one trend that's a little bit counter to some of the decline, some of the pressures that we've seen in other places. Now, those businesses still have a tough time. It's it's a hard life to start up your own farm, try to develop a market for it. And a lot of times those markets are outside of the traditional food distribution methods. You know, it's, it's harder to sell your stuff at Price Chopper if you're a small um, farmer here working 10 acres in Hamilton or something like that. You're more or less gonna have to kind of find an alternative market. So that's not easy, but there are a lot of folks who are trying it. You've also served as the chair of Colgate's Upstate Institute. Can you talk a little bit about that effort and what Colgate aims to achieve with its support of student researchers in New York? I'm so glad you brought up the Upstate Institute. I am, Full disclosure, I, I am a board member too. So <laughs> That's right. We, we appreciate having you there so we can communicate all the cool things that uh, the Upstate Institute does. I have become a real fanboy of community-based research in my time at Colgate. It's one way that Colgate has really shaped and inspired my own research, teaching, and service. And that's um, the whole philosophy and uh, model for the Upstate Institute is to take community-based research methods and um, efforts and use them to try to help community partners in our neighborhood. 
So the main way in which we achieve that through the Upstate Institute, a big way that we do that is that every summer, about two dozen or so Colgate students are funded to have a summer internship where they are embedded in a local organization that uh, that's really spans the gamut. Some of them are government offices like the government uh, county office of health, uh, the county offices of social services, but it's also a lot of nonprofits and NGO groups that are uh, related to uh, say alleviating poverty or helping um, folks with disabilities or uh, preventing certain forms of um, challenges that communities are facing like alcoholism or drug abuse. So there's a whole range of different uh, organizations that are doing good work out there. And a lot of times they might have a research question that they would really like to address, find some data for, find an answer for, but they're working on a shoestring budget or they don't have much staff or ju they're just crushed for time and they don't have a chance to do it themselves. So with this student over the summer and with some guidance, oftentimes from faculty and from the upstate staff, um, especially the amazing Julie Dudrick, um, who is the um, program coordinator for, the, uh, for this summer field school program, these organizations can get help that way. They can solve a research question um, or at least get some traction on it with the support of these students. So I think it's a really great model of how universities can give back in a way that's based in their strengths, right? We, our strengths is that we know how to do research. We know how to develop a research question, collect the data, analyze it, uh, communicate it, the key steps of the research process. So it's, it's taking what we, one of the things we really do best and applying it to the uh, needs and interests of the community. On that thread of community, I know that outside of teaching, you're also an elected trustee in the village of Hamilton. So what got you interested in uh, local politics? And I guess, um, how does your academic expertise help uh, in that role? Yeah, wow. You know, I'm a politician now. I actually have two jobs. I work for Colgate and I work for the village of Hamilton. So I kind of have uh, two different jobs I'm juggling at the moment. The trustee job is one that I'm learning on the job. Literally, I've been doing it for just a few months now, and I'm realizing just how interesting and how complex our little village is. Um, I've heard it described as a little city. Um, we have our own utility system, our own electric, our own gas distribution system, um, obviously water, uh, things like that. We are a little city and there's a lot of things to keep track of that folks don't always know is happening or think about. And so one of the things that I've been kind of learning on the job is how to best support the community through what I know, who I know, some of the stuff that I'm interested in as a trustee and kind of helping kind of connect um, the university and in the village in ways that are gonna be productive and help both of those um, I guess, what would we call them? Roommates? <laughs> <laughs> neighbors. You know, neighbors live together and live together in more or less harmonious and productive way, right? Yeah. Um, it's, that kind of, it's not something that had totally been on my radar until earlier this year. There was a couple of folks in the community who asked me if I would be interested in running after I um, returned from a semester abroad in Australia. So I was in Australia and in the second half of 2019 and came back on New Year's Day. And uh, wasn't too long after that, that I was actually at a hockey game. Obviously this is pre-pandemic sometime in January, February. And this really beloved uh, neighbor of mine, David Beatty, who's a Colgate graduate, um, asked me if I would be interested in running for trustee and kind of twisted my arm a little bit, you know, said, you should, you should run for trustee. Um, it's, it's a bittersweet story because David actually um, died earlier this year. Um, he was one of the first folks, I think, in central New York who got COVID and actually passed away from it. So mm. I'm, I'm, I'm somebody who's really inspired by him. He's one of my personal heroes, just like a really great community member. Anytime you would go to a community event, you would see him and his wife, Susan, there. Anytime you go to a Colgate sporting event of any kind. He, would, he was just such a, such a Colgate booster and such a Hamilton booster that when he asked me to do it, I couldn't just like say no. <laughs> I had to at least think about it and I couldn't think of a good reason not to do it. Mm 
So I said, yeah, I'll try this out. And so I ran for election. Um, the election was delayed. It was supposed to happen in June, but the pandemic pushed it back to September. I didn't have an opponent. <laughs> so I won an uncontested <laughs> <Tight> election. <laughs> yeah. So I ran unopposed and I got elected. Um, they couldn't find anybody else to, to run against me, I guess. Um, so, uh, so yeah, now I'm a, a village trustee. And like I said, it's been really interesting and, um, I'm trying to do my best to learn, learn more about the village and, and how I can best support the community. Can you talk a little bit about the Hamilton climate preparedness working group, um, and what they've accomplished over the past few years? Yeah, the working group, the Hamilton Climate Preparedness Working Group is a group that I've been chairing mostly since 2016. I took a little time off when I went to Australia and um, I, I got the group started um, more or less in partnership with John Pamilio, who's our director of sustainability at Colgate. One of when our was, early podcast episodes to interact. If you want to hear John Pamilio, just go back in time on uh, your app. There you go. Um, there's, there's lots of, there's lots of amazing people at Colgate. And so, you know, you can probably jump to a lot of other podcasts and, and links and stuff like that. And you should definitely learn about John because he's one of the most amazing people, not only at Colgate, but that I've ever met in my life. Just like a really, a, a guy who really knows so much about sustainability work, but also lives it is, is, is a really like, it's a, it's a deep part of him and his ethics. And he, he said, you, you know, do you want, do you want to develop a, um, a group where we could talk about just like, you know, kind of get around the dinner table maybe and talk about ways that we can help uh, Colgate more deeply engage with the community around climate change. And it's not to say that climate change hasn't been a focus in Hamilton and in central New York. We actually have a really progressive county um, that you know, has been doing a lot in terms of sustainability, climate planning, and New York, New York overall is, is a real leader in those issues too. But can we actually try to really bring around the table some of the local leaders in terms of our universities, our village and town governments, other um, organizations like the Partnership for Community Development, our um, agricultural community, our business community. Could we kind of have a working group that would bring all those people together and try to coordinate some of our efforts to get, um, to try to really address this key challenge of our time. And so again, it was like another one of those things where um, it only took a little bit of suggestion or arm twisting. I was like, yeah, of course that's, that's a great idea. And so since 2016, we've been meeting about once a month and we've had amazing support from various community members and organizations, but also from our students. We've had probably dozens, I don't know the exact number, but dozens of students who've been involved with work in this group through coursework where they developed a research project or a report that we built on. Um, Upstate Institute summer students um, and other um, students who got involved as like sustainability interns things like that and, and develop all these cool resources for us to use and build on uh, for research that helps us be more climate ready and prepared. And so one of the things that we've achieved recently is we actually were certified by New York State as a climate smart community. There's a statewide program where you kind of have to do these initiatives that build up points. And when you get to a certain number of points, you can be awarded bronze, silver, Gold, I think is the next one. Um, it's kind of similar to LEED certification for our buildings. Some of our buildings on campus now are certified sustainable uh, by LEED at various um, metal levels, bronze, gold, platinum, things like that. Um, so same thing for our community now, for the town and the village and the county, we are kind of like have this stamp of approval. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that now we're sustainable, but it means that we've kind of put in place this working group and a set of procedures, a set of goals that kind of help us get on track over the longer term to try to really get some um, progress and some traction in terms of climate change planning and, and action. Hmm. Very cool. Well, you, you've reached the 13th question. We're wow. already there. 
Um, so with all of our uh, discussion here related to food, I, I have to ask if you're a good cook. And, and if so, do you have a favorite meal to prepare uh, that you could perhaps share with us, with the audience here? Yeah, actually, uh, I the, the the question is: Are you are you a cook or are you a baker? We have we have this uh-huh. discussion in in my my home all the time, right? And there's kind of like I don't know a set of stereotypes that maybe go along with this, right? And I I'm kind of a control freak, and so I'm actually if I cook something, I tend to follow the recipe. I'm not one of those people who are like, oh, you know, what do I have in the kitchen? Can I throw something together? I've got a little of this and a little of that. Like, that is not my forte. <laughs> so baking is much more kind of in my lane. And I really, I really enjoy baking. Um, it's something that I find really satisfying to develop uh, a, a loaf of bread and over the course of a day or two days, whatever recipe I'm using and how much lead time it takes for like a starter or something like that. And you can take out of the oven this amazing loaf of bread. There's not a lot of things in my life that I can just do in a day. You know, like this this latest book that Ben and I published took years and years to start from the first kernel of an idea to actually having it in our hands. So it, I find it really satisfying to kind of go through that process, that hands-on process of developing some um, bread in a dough. It's really simple ingredients. You know, the most basic baguette you can make is just water, flour, salt, and yeast. Mm-hmm. A little bit of, of each of them together with the right technique, and you can have this amazing loaf of bread. So that's that's what I enjoy the most. And so pizza, I guess, would be my kind of specialty. I, I, I've tried a lot of different styles of pizza over the years. It's something my mom actually taught me when I think I was in high school. Uh, she always made homemade pizza. And one time I asked her to show me how to make it. And she showed me and I've kind of been making pizza ever since and have refined various recipes, but I still actually have mom's recipe and I use it pretty often when I want to make pizza. I go back to that old standard. That's very cool. Um, we'll have to, if, if you give us the recipe for the dough, we can put it in the show notes. Yep. Happy to do that. I'll give you mom's pizza recipe. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Professor Henke. That was 13. Uh, tell your friends and family about the podcast. As always, uh, send us an email if you have any questions uh, that you'd like to have answered. That's uh, 13 at colgate.edu, 13 the number. Um, Thanks again for listening as we uh, continue to record via Zoom throughout the pandemic. And as always, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by Catrail Pritz. Executive producer, Laura Jack. And I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit colgatemagazine.com and colgateresearchmagazine.com for more in-depth faculty research stories.